So we would be a much smaller country if the, one of the founding principles of the United States was keeping foreign people out. Immigrants are assets. We do benefit economically, socially, and culturally from the admission of immigrants so that it will serve our interests and reflect our values. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Over the last few decades, immigration has been one of the hottest topics on campaign trails. You've all heard the bumper sticker slogans and rallying cries. It's featured prominently in presidential and midterm elections. It's been a major fundraising tool. And on the surface, it looks like there's no path forward toward agreement on immigration policy. But in the last 15 years, there have been several bipartisan pushes for comprehensive immigration reform. And I wanted to dive into what the areas of agreement are, where the sticking points are, and what real reform could look like. So I'm thrilled to have two guests today who come at these questions from different perspectives. Frank Sherry has been a leading advocate for immigration reform for over 40 years. He previously led the National Immigration Forum, which fought for a bipartisan approach to immigration reform that was championed by Senators John McCain and Ted Kennedy. In 2008, he founded America's Voice, a pro-immigrant communications-oriented group, and he now consults on immigration policy with a variety of groups. Frank, pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Politicology. Thanks for having me, Ron. It's good to be here. David Beer is the Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. He's an expert on legal immigration, border security, and interior enforcement. His research has been cited by the United States Supreme Court and multiple federal appeals courts, and his work has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, and USA Today. David, pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Politicology. Thanks for having me. So, gentlemen, I thought we'd start with some background and stage setting before we dive into details here. Why don't you share with our listeners how both of you became interested in immigration policy in the first place? What, what drew you in, David? Really, I'm a libertarian, so it was about the liberty of people to associate with people from around the world, uh, the freedom of Americans to interact and trade Uh, with people I felt was a fundamental liberty that was really underappreciated and underprotected. And the impact of immigration restrictions on the rights and liberties of Americans uh, was really the main reason why I became engaged in uh, immigration research. I believe in Julian Simon's vision, uh, economist Julian Simon, uh, who was uh, uh, adjunct at at the Cato Institute for many years, um, believe that people are the ultimate resource and that we need more people if we want to produce more uh, goods and services and a, and a better society. We want to engage people uh, from around the world in a cooperative effort uh, to produce a better world. And that's the vision that I believe in. Fantastic. Frank, how about you? I got involved through the humanitarian work with refugees that I was doing. I was living overseas in Singapore. Vietnamese boat people were being driven out of the southern part of unified Vietnam after 1975, the so-called boat people. And uh, they hired a bunch of Americans to help process people for admission to America. And I'd gone to Singapore to live there because I wanted to get away from America because I had read a couple of pamphlets in college, Ron, and I thought I knew a lot about how bad America was. And there I was dealing with people who were risking their lives to get a chance at the American dream. And it really kind of woke me up to the fact that 
America has a lot to offer. And for many people around the world, it's a magical destination where dreams come true or can come true. And uh, I was really inspired by the courage and uh, risk-taking of refugees and um, turned it into, I guess, a career. Uh, So I've been advocating for refugees and immigrants for over four decades. Okay. So, Frank, you're coming at these problems from the center left. David, you're looking at these problems as a libertarian. Um, And before we get into what the biggest problems are in the policy space and the key challenges, I thought it'd be helpful to zoom out a little bit and talk about what our first principles as a country are and or ought to be when it comes to immigration. Because I think it's easy to get bogged down into the immediate um, crisis and the thorniness of the politics. But if we were starting with a very blank slate and designing immigration policy from the ground up, From your perspectives, what should U.S. immigration policy prioritize? What are the key factors and considerations that should guide policy decisions in in this area? I'm just at a very, very high level. What are the a priorities here? Um, And maybe, Frank, you can start and David, you can follow. Sure. Um, Number one, I think you have to start with the fact, the proven fact that immigrants are assets to America that people who come to the United States uh, overwhelmingly work hard, uh, form small businesses, form tech companies, um, operate at all levels of the labor market in a way that complements rather than substitutes for American workers and entrepreneurs. And so immigrants are assets. Number two, This is something that's um, not always accepted, particularly in progressive circles, but I think we have to state it, that in the age of the nation state, the nation, the government gets to determine who comes in and who doesn't, so that there is a right and a duty as a sovereign nation to determine what those policies are. But when you put those together, um, uh, and I think this is where maybe David and I do agree, is that um, you can have a controlled and orderly process that's ex- more expansive than currently because immigrants are assets. We do benefit economically, socially, and culturally from the admission of immigrants. Yes, it should be in our interests and 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 according to our uh, needs and values. But the the sort of more versus less debate that is often the way this conversation is characterized. It's, it's better understood as a more and more, more control and order and more immigration and legal uh, channels for that immigration so that it will serve our interests and reflect our values. Okay. This is really helpful. I'm glad we're doing this. David, how do you see these a priorities and the, the, the overarching first principles of immigration policy? I don't see it as any differently than I see the rest of uh, the U.S. government. Uh, The government exists to protect the rights and uh, and individual liberties of Americans. And the government should not intervene in the free market activities of individuals unless there is a threat to uh, those rights and liberties. And so uh, people moving from one place to another does not pose a threat unless they're doing it for violent uh, or criminal reason. And so some minimal screening uh, of, of individuals coming into the country, that's a reasonable um, 
uh, in position to protect our rights. But it is beyond that. We're talking about uh, something that is uh, fundamentally outside of U.S. government capacity to decide the optimal number of workers, the optimal number of people, the optimal number of races and and uh, religions in the United States. These are all questions that our uh, government is not capable of answering uh, and should not even attempt uh, to try to answer. Okay, so let me just follow up on that. Um, let's talk about U.S. interests then for a minute. In what ways do national security, economic concerns, humanitarian considerations what degree does the United States have an interest in those things as it comes to shaping immigration policies? Or do you see them as uh, as not valid U.S. interests? And then I'd love to hear Frank's perspective on those. Well, I think the security aspects are quite clear. Um, we've had some people who have attempted to or, and have, in fact, uh, gained admission to America to attack Americans. And so uh, we have a, an obligation to protect the citizenry, the people of the United States, and those who are bad actors who seek admission to do bad things, to kill Americans or to attack Americans. Obviously, that's a huge security interest. We are in a, um, you know, a, a stormy, troubled, rough and tumble world where there are intelligence operatives and non-state operatives that are seeking to gain advantage. There's criminal networks that are very sophisticated that are moving contraband and um, human trafficking as well in ways that are, are contrary to our laws and our morals. So, yeah, there's a security interest in making sure that the United States is protecting itself against bad actors, is reducing um, the, is deterring to the extent possible those who are committing uh, criminal acts. Um, so that's the obvious, and, and, and of course, protecting us from, from foreign adversaries. The 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 economic interests I, I think are poorly understood. This is where um, the research uh, over the years on the economic consequences of immigration, which in fact was the name of the book by Julian Simon, that was really a a, a breakthrough. He said things like, "Immigrants take jobs and they make jobs." I mean, it was so simple and honest, uh, it, but it broke through because we have been in this binary: are they good or bad for Americans? As if we live in an apple pie that doesn't grow or expand. We live in a very dynamic world and a very dynamic country. And what has traditionally happened, not just recently, but throughout our uh, American history, is that people have come from around the world. They vote with their feet. They often are the most entrepreneurial people because they want to come to a, a place where there's such opportunity and abundance. And they make their, they make their dreams come true by uh, providing goods and services and contributions to the, the, to, to the economy that, that, that have made us the envy of the world. So um, uh, the, the, the impact of immigrants on the economy is not all positive, but on balance and over time, very positive. So that's the um, economic uh, aspect. And then, I mean, just looking at the social and cultural aspects, uh, I don't know, just maybe watching <laughs> all these foreign basketball players star in the NBA finals and uh, so forth is just another reminder of the kind of cultural and athletic and, 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 and scientific contributions of immigrants. It's just amazing. And we should be proud to live in a country where people want to come here because we're a country that's not based in blood and soil. We're a country based on 
ideas and ideals. And it's kind of our magic sauce. And I think we underappreciate it. The most significant aspect of immigration on the United States is just the increase in the number of Americans that exist as a result of immigration. If just natural population growth had happened since the founding of this country, we'd have a population that's roughly 200 million people smaller than what we are today. So we would be a much smaller country if one of the founding principles of the United States was keeping foreign people out. And when you think about that in world context, what it would mean if we were a third of the size that we are today, we would be not the haven for business around the world. We would not be everyone trying to get access to American markets. Um, We would not be a place where we can throw our weight around on the world stage and try to, uh, uh, you know, make trade rules to our liking and, and that type of thing. Um, even militarily, we were talking about a, a, a much smaller military, a, a much less, um, uh, a much weaker country, basically. And, you know, a country that's smaller in population than Brazil. I mean, if we had banned all German immigration since the founding, Germany, German's pop, Germany's population might be larger than the United States population is right now. So, the, uh, I mean, that in the counterfactual, I mean. So it's, it's really, um, that is the most important and most overlooked aspect of immigration is just raw size matters and immigration increases the number of Americans. And if you think Americans are great, uh, and I certainly do. Um, I want to see more of them. That's so well put. So for such a white hot uh, political issue, um, you know, there's a there seems to be a lot of broad agreement on what on what good immigration policy can look like, at least from first principles anyway. Um, you know, and I come from a, a campaign political background, and there's a cynical saying that immigration is one of the most profitable problems that we have, Um, meaning it is far more profitable to fight over it than it is to solve it. Um, Now, that's obviously very cynical and coming from a, you know, a a political uh, perspective. Um, And in a minute, I want to get into some of the tension points, some of the friction points that that are actually holding us up. I am curious about how you see that that part of it, but we'll save that for a little bit later. Why don't we paint uh, some of the rest of the picture of the broad agreement on 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 what immigration policy could look like? Where's where does the Venn diagram of over, you know the overlap uh, between your two perspectives? And maybe you know we should probably steel man the the perspective that's not here uh, in the room to the, to the extent that there's a uh, a steel man argument available, which is the the um, new rights view on immigration. Um, uh, up to you who, who wants to lead off here, but, I, but I'd like to give listeners a sense of, you know, um, if politics were out of the equation for just a minute, <laughs> where would the points of agreement be um, uh, on, on immigration policy if we we're going to try and solve it? David, why don't you start? Well, I think we've, we've talked about how Immigrants are assets, and they're a benefit to the country. Um, I think there's agreement between libertarians and and, uh, liberals on on that issue. I think that 
generally speaking, we want to see a more expansive legal immigration system. Um, we need to provide a way for people who have come here illegally to to find a way to to get legal, to get right with the law. Uh, that's what we do in in other aspects of of uh, of the law. We have a way for people to rectify their situation with the IRS. Uh, that doesn't automatically mean you know spending the rest of their life in jail. Um, and you know the equivalent in the immigration context is deporting for a lifetime, which is really that's the penalty on the table. Well, there's not much incentive to come forward and get right with the law and register your status if if that's the case. So I think those are the two buckets that you're going to see some broad agreements. I don't think having a path to citizenship, you know, this is getting into disagreement, I suppose, but I don't think having a path to citizenship is that important uh, compared to the right to be able to live and work uh, legally. And, um, and, you know, and I don't think that I think there's a lot of discussion about how to change the legal immigration system and, and what to prioritize there uh, where there would be some uh, disagreement between Frank and I. But um, I'll leave it to, to Frank to describe that. Yeah. Frank, why don't you? Yeah. Anything you view differently, but I'm specifically interested in the overlap of agreement here. And then maybe I'll put it to you to briefly uh, characterize or, you know, steel man the, uh, the, the, the voice that's not in the room. <laughs> I worked very closely with uh, people like Senator Ted Kennedy and Senator John McCain, Congressman Luis Gutierrez, Congressman Jim Colby, Senator Jeff Flake, even Lindsey Graham before he lost his soul. Um, We're interested in a bipartisan approach that had three key elements. One, expand legal immigration. And there's, you know, business, family, both. What do we do about refugees? There's there's lots of questions within that, but a more expansive approach to legal immigration. 11 million or so people here without papers, some process of legalization. I strongly support a path to citizenship so that there's full rights and responsibilities at the end of the rainbow. Um, uh, others say that's like Dave, that's David says, you know, maybe not so necessary, uh, but, but, but the, a legalization program. And then third, how do you enforce and order a system that is more expansive, that's more liberalized and more legalized? And, um, you know, that's a tough one because uh, most of the tools we have um, are, are, are faulty. Um, and in fact, many of the ways you better regulate a system is by liberalizing it. Um, if I sound like a libertarian, please forgive me. Um, uh, but the the fact is, is that, you know, I mean, this is what Biden is doing at the border right now. He's actually come up with a way where they've expanded legal options for uh, an orderly admission to the United States. And it's incentivized going through that system rather than trying to go around it. And so um, there is something to that um, relationship that is often seen in political circles as some sort of tawdry trade-off between order and liberalization. I actually think that they go together if they're done right. We just haven't done it right. I do think another component that has to be brought in, and it's very much informed by what's happening at the southern border and beyond, is that, um, and this is true for Western Europe and for America, North America, Australia, New Zealand, there there has to be more engagement with sending countries. Um, At a time 
of uh, communications networks and smuggling networks and climate change and um, horrible governance and violence in many ascending uh, countries. We're never going to be able to just say, okay, let's all, everybody come to the West and we'll work it out that way. Um, that's may, maybe that could be a theoretical answer, but it's not a politically sustainable answer. So the question of how do we deal with sending countries and how do we deal with these challenges on a regional basis? Example, Colombia has millions of Venezuelans that they're, uh, uh, hosting and giving work permits to and working out. There's, you know, we talk a couple hundred thousand Venezuelans show up at the southern border and it's a crisis, but Colombia is doing the hard work of integrating their neighbors at a time when they're themselves are, are going through challenges. So I do think we have to have a better sort of international, we have to put migration at the center of foreign policy over time so that we're not dealing with it as if it starts at the border. Okay. And now, let me just, yeah. let me just yeah. say, yeah, let me say a word about the, to the extent you know, that there's what, a coherent what, view, uh, on yeah, the, there on is, the, you know, there is, it's, 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 um, it's as a, it's as old as the cavemen, um, which is that it's my cave. Who are you to come into my space? Um, and I'm going to keep you out or, uh, kick you out or kill you. The idea is that, um, this tribalistic, uh, zero sum game of this is ours and who are you to be knocking on our door is a very powerful appeal. It is at the heart of xenophobic populism throughout the West. Uh, you could say it played a role in Brexit. It certainly is playing a big role in Hungary right now. It's playing a role in Italy and in Sweden. And, and, and um, it's obviously the rise of Trump was very much aided by a strong, unadulterated nativist pitch. Uh, so, this notion that, you know, we got to take care of our own and who are these people to try to take what's ours is uh, is not is not to be dismissed so easily as if it doesn't have any power. It has a lot of power. The Republican Party um, just, you know, used to be more split between its more libertarian Wall Street Journal, dare I say, Cato Institute wing that was much more open to expanding immigration as long as it was better regulated. Um, and uh, a more national, ultra-nationalist, right-wing uh, nativist view. Trump really has changed that equation. You know, uh, I, I, I sometimes tell my friends, look, you know, John McCain lost his battle with cancer. Jeff Flake lost his Senate seat. Marco Rubio lost his nerve. And uh, Lindsey Graham lost his soul. I mean, we just, we, we no longer have a vibrant, center right in congress um it's, it's signs of it i'm still somewhat hopeful maybe david can give us some more encouraging news on that front but i do think that um at the end of the day we do need a bipartisan breakthrough we need a center right and a center left that can work together on this so that we can both um liberalize and better regulate immigration yeah if i could just add on i mean right now when i listen to you know, the criticism that I, you know, that I get when I propose more expansive immigration policy from the right is all about partisanship. Uh, we are the most polarized that we have ever been as a country, and it has infected every area, but especially immigration. And when you listen to what voters, you know, maybe not, maybe not elected politicians don't always bring it up uh, in this way. 
but their voters are keenly aware that a majority of immigrants are natural who are naturalized are not voting for the Republican Party. And so their belief is we let more in immigrants in the Republican Party is out of office, out of power forever. And that's the goal. That's why Democrats want to have a more expansive immigration system. That's why they want to pass the citizenship. It's all partisanship on the Democrat side. And the the Republican response is all partisanship on the other way. Uh, keep them out because they're going to be Democrats. And so that's the the major motivating factor. And it's not shouldn't be surprising that ultimately elections are the motivating factor in politics uh, to such a great extent. So, yeah, there's you sprinkle economic nationalism on it. You sprinkle cultural nationalism on it. You, you, you know, you sprinkle law and order kind of rhetoric on there. But at the base, it's these people are coming. And if they stay, there's going to be more Democrat voters. And therefore, then we're going to be out of power forever. And, um, you know, that's really just not thinking about politics in a dynamic way uh, at all. And, and there's no refuting the fact that that naturalized citizens are voting uh, more for Democrats than for Republicans. Part of that partially is where they settle. So they're not actually voting that differently than where they uh, where they settle in the United States. So major cities in the United States tend to vote more Democratic. So that's part of it. The other part of it is the Republican Party is nationalist and they don't want them here. And they keep saying how bad they are for the country. So um, th that is, that's part of it as well. But if you go back, I mean, they've been making this argument, the right, the right nationalist side of the Republican Party has been making this argument since the 1980s when Reagan uh, did his amnesty and then the Bush admit the uh, first Bush administration uh, passed the Immigration Act of 1990, which was a big expansion of legal immigration. And and if you look at the years since, the, the population, the immigrant population has doubled in the United States and the Republican Party has done, never done as well since the time of before Lincoln, you know, back, all the way back to Lincoln. Basically, the Republican Party is doing as well over the last 30 years as it did for the last 50 years of low immigration period. I mean, the, the Republican Party did not control either House of Congress about 85% of the time when the immigrant population was less than 10% of the population. And they've controlled one, at least one house about 85% of the time since it's gone above 10% of the population. So it, I'm not saying that, that this is causal, but the idea that they can't appeal to other constituencies and still compete in a world with with a lot of immigrants is just not true. And if the immigrant population continues to grow, there's going to be some immigrants who will vote for them, like maybe Cubans will vote for them like they already are. So the the idea that, you know, there that we live in this static world where, oh, if you add some people who are more likely to vote Democrat, then automatically means the Republicans will lose. It's just not true and not borne out by history. But, you know, there's only so much I can go with that. I, I'm not saying I want the Republicans to always win. I, I always want the Democrats to win. I'm nonpartisan. 
I don't care really. I like divided government more than anything else because that's what limits government spending and, and the size of government. But the at the end of the day, some re- political realities should be made apparent to the Republican Party on this issue. Yeah. And I can tell by the smile on Frank's face, he's got he's got a lot of thoughts to share. And I just want to follow up on that in terms of the, the political reality here. Uh, a, a thread that I have pulled on quite a lot with a dear friend of mine, Mike Madrid, who's a national political strategist, has done a lot of work in the immigration space, and also is writing a book about the Latinization of America. And one of those political realities is that the Democratic Party is actively hemorrhaging support among specifically Mexican-American immigrants, but the Latino community writ large outside of California. California's got its own sort of political dynamics, but within the rest of the contiguous 48, um, there uh, has been a dramatic decline in support for Democrats among um, among uh, the Latino Latino community, um, and so part of the part of the con- you know quote unquote political conventional wisdom I would love for us to um, uh, disabuse ourselves of is this idea that um, your skin color or origin is going to determine your political support and your values and. Uh, uh, Frank's Frank's chuckling now, and so I'd love I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of this. But that's one thread I think politicology listeners will be familiar with. This the this the um, the myth that demographics is destiny uh, has really been flayed open for which, which was which was legitimate political conventional wisdom received wisdom for a very long time, and uh, eminent scholars like Rui Teixeira have now uh, essentially recanted and said, okay, well, actually we were wrong. Um, uh, that isn't, that doesn't seem to be bearing out in the data. And so, um, Frank, I lay all of that at your feet. I know, uh, you've got a lot to say here. The idea that, uh, because many immigrants are people of color, they're going to vote for Democrat is is so simplistic and naive. Oh my God. It just shows that people don't know immigrant communities. Do you know that Asian American voters back George H.W. Bush by two to one. And it was only when the party swung hard right and said these family immigrants are chain migrants, when it's mainly Asians who are bringing in their educated loved ones who are coming and starting businesses and making a huge contribution. It's like, what? So so, uh, the Republicans bear some responsibility in that their nativism has driven some people away in places like California. And in places like in Arizona, obviously in Texas and, and Florida, and Georgia. immigrants seem to be quite happily in Georgia, but are living in, you know, red states um, run by very conservative governors. So um, I just think it's, it's, it's kind of silly. The, uh, the fact is, is that when people come to this country um, and they establish themselves and become citizens, usually a process that if, if there is a path to citizenship takes 15, 20 years. By the time they become voters, they're they're voting as Americans. That's what South Texas Hispanics are telling Mike Madrid and others. They're saying, look, don't put us in some category, some racial uh, uh, category that is supposed to vote a certain way. Yes, we have largely voted for Democrats down here in the past, but we feel like the Democrats are no longer appreciate us as hardworking families who need government to support our, our lifestyle and our culture rather than... Uh, look at us uh, in a racial identity box. That is a huge message to to Democrats to get real with voters and not try to uh, categorize them as if 
demography is destiny. So I just think it's, I mean, I grew up in a family, Irish Catholic and Italian in New England. My grandfather was a New Deal Democrat, Italian grandfather. Then he became a restaurant owner, right? And pretty soon he became a liberal Republican because he hated Democrats imposing taxes <laughs> in his business. And he loved Ronald Reagan. I mean, you know, how, how do you predict this stuff? I mean, you have a, a, Italians in New York that are rock-ribbed Republicans. What, what? I mean, the idea that New Deal Democrats are going to become Democrats for generations when, in fact, it's changed so dramatically just goes to show how silly that argument is. Um, but it, what's not silly about it is that you have you – know, it was led by Tucker Carlson and many – Many Republican leaders talk about how, oh, it's a replacement theory. This is a white nationalist conspiracy theory. The idea that they're bringing in voters so that they can displace Republicans, that's nasty stuff. That's the kind of rhetoric that inspires demented people to take guns and shoot people in Walmarts and Topps grocery stores and synagogues in Pittsburgh. So um, I really do think that the, the rhetoric has gone really far away from um, a sensible Republican approach and a sensible Democratic approach that would, in the end, be bipartisan and about modernization rather than this food fight, you know, quite frankly, where uh, Republicans seem, at this point, many of them, most of them, much more interested in running on the issue than in actually solving it. This is a good, I, I want to pull on one more political thread here, and then I want to get to the challenges and and like the real sticking points and challenges and then opportunities for for real reform here. But last last thing on the political front, um, you know, I'm I'm curious broadly how the how the political dynamic influences the discourse and decision making around uh immigration policy. But right now today, or earlier earlier this June, I should say, um Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's running in the Democratic primary for president and already polling at 20 percent, visited the southern border and he spoke to News Nation and Forbes while he was down there. And I want to play a couple of those clips. What is your takeaway? You know, I, I have a whole kind of confluence of impressions about what I saw. I mean, starting last night, it was like a, a dystopian nightmare with, you know, all of these desperate people flooding across the wall and in a situation that clearly could have been prevented. And people from all over the world, from Africa, from Uzbekistan, from uh, Senegal, from Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, Nepal, Tibet, India, Bangladesh, Peru, Colombia. We saw all of these people in these hundreds and hundreds of people coming across the wall. And it seemed so hopeless. And then meeting all of the people of Yuma, the leadership, this extraordinary leadership in this amazing town, um, the people who run the hospitals, the people who run the border clinic, the, the, um, the sheriff, uh, um, and the and you know all of these other people at the food banks who are working as hard as they can to accommodate the problem a problem that was been created by the federal government that local people are being you know forced to hold the bag on. We talked to the hospital administrator who spent twenty three million dollars last year that is unreimbursed are caring for migrants and are giving migrants the same level of care with the same priority uh, that they treat people who are their relatives in the town. So it's this extraordinary, it's kind of the best part of America and the worst part at the same time. And then there's another clip where he describes what happens, what he claims happens after they uh, cross. This was to Forbes. 
people have come across right here from 117 nations in the last couple of years. In three years, in total, 7 million people have come across the border illegally into our country. And from here, they're put on these buses and they're brought to the Border Patrol station where they're processed. After four or five days, they're released on their own reconnaissance into our country, and most of them are never seen or heard from again. Now, I, uh, I watched these video clips, and I haven't been to this part of the southern border, uh, but I have to say they're quite striking because there's this point where this very, very massive wall just stops, and, it's, and after that point, there's just nothing. And, uh, and there seems to be a pretty orderly process of people lining up, getting on buses, and then uh, away, away they go. I'm really curious uh, to hear from both of you about what is, what's true here, what's, what's being mischaracterized, and, um, and what, what, do, what do ordinary people uh, need to understand about the current situation at the border the the migrant um, influx or the lull in the influx of migrants and um, and how, how what is the most responsible and accurate way to to characterize the the problem? Well, I would characterize it as as chaos. Um, it's chaos, and I would agree that it's chaos caused by government. I just don't agree that uh, you know people coming to this country is the worst of America. That's that's. Uh, you know, quite a quite a statement uh, from a Democratic Party uh, candidate uh, to make. But the you know, in terms of the numbers, I mean, the idea that that you know they're all being released is is not true. Uh, we're we've expelled almost three million people uh, from the border uh, back to Mexico or their home countries. Uh, we're even after Title 42, we've uh, banned asylum for people who cross the border illegally. We're expelling as many as we can onto flights. And when I talk about we, obviously, this is the Biden administration doing this. They're flying flights every day um, all around the world, uh, sending uh, thousands of people back to their home countries. Un- unfortunately, from the perspective of people who want a closed border, there aren't enough flights. Uh, for uh, everyone who crosses the border, and some people get released, and some people get to pursue their asylum claims as the law of the United States entitles them to. If you read Title Eight of the U.S. Code, uh, you can see right there in Section 208 the right of asylum, the right to apply for asylum regardless of how you entered this country. Now, it, should that be the primary way that people come to the United States? Absolutely not. And the Biden administration's response has been to create programs that let people come in legally. Unfortunately, he's only done it for Cuba, Venezuela, Haiti, and Nicaragua. These are programs where people can sponsor, Americans can sponsor people from these countries to come in legally. And those are great programs. Uh, but they're inadequate uh, for the scale of the problem. And we need to have a fundamental rethink of our immigration system to address uh, the larger issue of how people enter the United States under what terms. But I think the private sponsorship model makes sense. Having Americans say, okay, I want to sponsor this person. They come in, I'll assume some financial uh, responsibility for them. 
and uh, they come in legally, that's a great deal uh, for America. And we need to expand on that concept as a response to this uh, truly, you know, it truly is a crisis. And he talks about Yuma and the hospitals and, and all this. Well, why are so many migrants showing up in Yuma's hospital? It's because they're crossing the border illegally in the middle of a desert. You have people coming in who are dehydrated. They're, they're, they're in all states. We have so many who are dying showing up at the Yuma hospital, unfortunately. And there's a wall that was built by the Trump administration that's 30 feet high. And people are falling off the wall and dying and being injured by the hundreds. And so, so much of the problems are being created because we're letting people in. We do not let people in legally. And we ultimately force them into the position where illegal, illegal immigration is their only option. Can we just pause to make a distinction between uh, a closed border and a secure border? Can we parse that briefly here? Because there, I think there's a big difference here. And maybe um, people who want a secure border are not necessarily people who want a closed border. I'm putting that in air quotes, meaning like no immigration at all. But it does seem to me that there is some truth to the uh, claim that you have to have a, uh, a secure border if you're going to have uh, legal immigration. Can you? Can you speak to that? Look, this is you're getting Ron right at the heart of it because we we tend to do is like are we for this or are we for that? And the answer is yes, we're for both. Are we for a secure border? Yes. Are we for liberalized legal immigration? Yes. Are they at odds? No. They work together. If you want people to enter in an orderly fashion to mind the queue, as they say in the UK, and to come in after with screening and with status and with the you know, formal admission from the United States, you have to create those pathways. And if you don't want people to come in illegally, you can try a 14th century wall, but I'm, I'm much more interested in what's the right combination of incentives and disincentives where you don't cross the, the border illegally because there are consequences that will thwart your dream of coming to America. In fact, the better option is to wait for your asylum interview that you get now through an app or for a humanitarian parole visa that you now get through these expanded pathways for four countries. That is a much more, so, so, so my view is that, and I totally agree with David that these images of chaos drive Americans crazy. Americans are not majority speaking are not anti-immigrant. They're anti-chaos. They want to have expanded legal and lawful pathways and uh, uh, expanded orderliness in the process. What we have at the border, just to, to, to understand first things, it's not an illegal immigration crisis. It's not 7 million people and all that, all those talking points that Kennedy was using. The fact is, is that in, as the pandemic receded in this country, but not in Latin America, you had you know corrupt governments, poorly handled the pandemic, no economic opportunity, spreading violence, climate-related disasters, and, and particularly in countries such as Venezuela and Cuba and Haiti and, and Nicaragua, but also in other parts of, of the region, people said, man, America is, has a labor shortage and freedom, and my country has neither jobs nor a government that cares about us and widespread death and, and uh, 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 instability. And we have family members up there. So the way people, the only way to get in was to go to the border and apply for asylum. It overwhelmed 
our asylum system at the border. We have a legal right to ask for asylum. Everybody deserves a fair hearing, but not everybody deserves to get it. So instead of building up an asylum system that could manage the increased flow, what the Biden administration has ultimately decided to, after I think muddling through for the first two years in a way that really was unfortunate, is they've expanded legal pathways, they've restricted asylum at the border, they've allowed some to come across, but only through ports of entry to apply for asylum, they've surged resources to be able to handle it. And so, you know, you saw the entire media go to the border with the lifting of this Title 42 Public Health Authority, predicting a huge surge of, you know, what the right was calling a border invasion and what, you know, the mainstream media was calling, you know, a huge surge in arrivals. And there's been a 70% reduction. Why? Because they actually kind of stumbled into a combination of disincentives and incentives that seems to have brought the numbers down. I find it remarkable that we're talking about the numbers at the border as some uh, dispositive measure of what who we are as a country and what we should do. <laughs> you know, I don't know why we don't analyze pull fa- uh, push factors more and what to do about that. I don't understand why we're not talking more about how to help communities in the United States that are dealing with new arrivals. It's all border, 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 but we do have to manage it. It is the 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 sovereign duty of our nation to do so. And um, we have to impose enough order so that it's politically sustainable and and manageable as a, as a democratic polity. And I just think that um, the, the Biden administration deserves more credit in recent weeks for kind of getting it sort of right, even though the undermining the right to asylum for those who cross illegally is, is not a small thing. It's going to create a race to the bottom around the world for refugee protection. But I think what we're seeing is that as we enter an age of mass migration, what Western countries have to do is figure out essentially a new paradigm to manage and order the process because the world, the post-World War II refugee paradigm is useful but not enough. I think one point you just made is really worth underscoring, which is that the orderliness, the optics of the orderliness go hand in hand with the politics because I think that what Americans really get upset about is just how incompetent America looks uh, when you are faced with the, the 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 really stunning images and video of of our of our own border. Um, and if that if it didn't look that way, and if actually legal immigration were easier, this would be a thing that most people don't even pay attention to. And so, um, on that front, David, you have a policy analysis that just came out about how difficult it is to immigrate legally and you likened legal immigration to winning the lottery like it happens but it's so rare that it's irrational to expect it in any individual case <laughs> can you walk us through what the process looks like now and what the pitfalls are the basic premise of us immigration legal immigration policy is that the entire world is ineligible to immigrate unless they fall into one of five uh categories and you have to prove your eligibility uh, for one of these uh, categories. The first is the the refugee program that you have to understand there's there's a hundred million displaced people around the world. Um, of course, most of them are not trying to get to the United States, but there's 20 million refugees who've left their home country and fled persecution to another country. And those are just the ones of course that we know about. And the United States choose chose 
last year under the Biden administration to accept 25,000 refugees through the refugee program. So it is literally like winning the lottery. And then you have the literal green card lottery, uh, the diversity visa lottery, which again, you have about last year was about 17 million in most years before the pandemic was over 20 million applicants uh, for the lottery program, 55,000 slots. And again, it's, you know, winning the lottery and all of the major sending countries are ineligible. So India, China, Mexico, uh, most of the Central American countries are ineligible for the diversity visa lottery because it's supposed to diversify uh, immigration to the United States. Then you have family sponsored and family sponsored is is really divided into two parts. The the part that's uncapped, the only uncapped categories of immigration that, that remain are for uh, spouses, minor children, and parents of adult U.S. citizens. Those are the only categories that are, are not subject to, to a cap. But it, the way it works is if there are more of those, uh, those uncapped family members enter, the cap on the rest of family-based immigration goes down. And so it goes down from 480,000 down to uh, 226,000 per year. And the result is now we have a backlog of about 7 million people waiting for family-sponsored visas, family reunification. These are only for close U.S. relatives of U.S. citizens and legal permanent residents. Under this current structure, the, the number of cap spots you can expect that a majority of the sponsors in a majority of the categories will die before their relative gets to come to the United States if they're applying right now in 2023. And then, so just to, to finish it out, so the, the last two are self-sponsored. There, there's a few categories for self-sponsorship through employment-based. And these are for investors who put in a million dollars into a U.S. business and create 10 jobs in two years, people with extraordinary ability or exceptional ability who have a, a project in the national interest. I mean, these are very narrow categories. And then you have employer-sponsored. And, and this category is the one, well, okay, well, I can find an employer. There are 10 million open jobs in the United States. Surely uh, I'll be able to find a, a way to come through employer-sponsored immigration. And there, again, we have a cap that is uh, set at about 10% of the, the number of people in the backlog waiting for a green card. But even if we didn't have a cap, the process to get a green card through the employer-sponsored system, because of the regulations that have been created around it, th the process takes about two to three years to get through that process. And if you're an employer, you don't need a worker now. You're not going to be able to wait two or three years. So what ends up happening is for the vast majority of jobs, if you're high skilled, you apply for the H-1B lottery in order to get your worker and then they can work on the H-1B while they go through the green card process. Well, guess what? Last year, there were about 750,000 applications for 85,000 slots in the, in the H-1B uh, program. And so if you're high skilled, you're playing that lottery. Again, uh, randomness is just thrown throughout the immigration system. And then if you're low skilled, well, there's no year round guest worker visa for a low skilled worker at all. Uh, so there's nothing, no option there 
to hire a low-skilled worker. So who are the low-skilled employers hiring? They're hiring the asylum seekers who are coming to the border and applying for asylum. That's how they're getting labor to fill positions at poultries and dairies throughout the, the United States that have no option to hire under the employer-sponsored system. And so that's that's our immigration system right there. And it's basically impossible for nearly all people uh, to uh, come to the United States legally through that system. Yes, it still happens. But again, yes, people win the lottery, but that doesn't mean it's a viable alternative to a 401k plan. So, so, so legal immigration uh, events are exceedingly rare compared to illegal immigration events, essentially, because of how broken the, the, the system is. And I think listeners should now have a really clear sense of when we say our immigration system is broken, you just laid it bare. Um, uh, Frank's, Frank's nodding his head. I have a question about how you would characterize the ideology that is baked into the current immigration policy. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the way you characterized earlier on the um, the difference in approaches between free movement of people versus creating quotas based on where they're coming from or other or other uh, or other qualifications, other other criteria. How do you both see um, that approach, and what about U.S. interests informs that approach? Well, I don't think that in our lifetime it's going to be viable to talk about free movement of people. I just there's the 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 world is constituted the primacy of the nation state, the inequality that is rife. Um, as much as if I was living in Honduras, I would pick up and try to get into the United States, and I understand that. That doesn't mean that the United States has a right, has a duty to welcome that person. What I do think we have to do is figure out how to have freer movement into America that is better regulated, because I think that is the sustainable way that a democratic uh, society can serve its interests and uh, grow its economy and manage uh, properly. So, um, this, you know, D David's critique is absolutely right. There have been really good ideas that have been supported on a bipartisan basis to modernize our immigration system. More legal immigration, more high-skilled immigration, more temporary migration that leads to permanent migration so that the sojourner becomes a settler, but not in all cases a dynamic, flexible system by which employers can hire, workers can move, uh, native workers have their rights protected. Uh, the, the, the fact is, is that um, uh, when, when we, we, we could have a, I mean, look, when you look back at the Ellis Island period, they didn't have numerical quotas. <laughs> they had, you know, if you were crazy or sick, you couldn't get in, you know, had a contagious disease, you couldn't get in. But otherwise, you were in and it was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to America? All these Eastern and Central Europeans are coming in. It'll be the death of America. And oh, my goodness, look at now we have parades to celebrate every one of those ethnic groups. The fact is, is that we can benefit from expanded freer immigration and have it better regulated so that it's more politically sustained and get out of this zero sum debate 
about, you know, are they good or bad for us and should we let any in or not? That's just so backwards. So, so should be, so. should we be weighing the merit of an immigration applicant uh, based on whether they are coming from, for example, South America or Western Europe? Like, it, are there real considerations in the national interest that should weigh in that decision? I, I don't think, look, I, I think we, we, we need a, a, a racially neutral approach to immigration, a, a geographically neutral. What we do need is to be clear on what, is, what serves our interests, what are our priorities to admit people. Should we let in more skilled and educated immigrants that can mm. fill our, you know, deal with healthcare uh, shortages, whether it's doctors or, or nurses? Let's say that's obvious. But we also don't produce our own native farm workers. We rely on workers. And as David points out, there's no legal, no meaningful legal pathway. Um, there's a there's a guest worker program, but it's 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 very hard to use, even though it's expanded. The fact is, is that employers and farm worker advocates have come up with deals for the last 20 years on how to rationalize a system where you expand legal immigration, you legalize the undocumented, and you do it in a way that stabilizes the industry and the supply of workers. The fact that our politics don't allow for common sense, right, left, business, labor deals that are designed to admit immigrants that we need, do so in an orderly fashion that the public demands, and do so in a way that protects both the rights of the immigrant workers and native workers, I mean, it just shows how, po- how our politics are the problem. Not mm. So we can, we, can, we can expand our immigration system. We can better it, regulate our immigration system. We can have the benefits of an uh, of, of a uh, of a more expansive immigration system that serves our interests and reflects our generosity as a people. I think that's an important part that we shouldn't leave out. Okay. Refugees should be a part of the stream and not the only part, but and we should do more than 15,000 a year. That's ridiculous. Yeah. In any case, um, we, 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 we have, we, 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 there are, there are solutions. We haven't created the political space for uh, the, the passage of those solutions. You know, I, I think it's it's worth talking about, you know, first principles because they're they're important and they inform how we prioritize. Look, you know, I'm I'm a, a first principle guy. I believe in libertarian principles. I believe the role of government should be limited to protecting individual rights. But if the government is insistent that we are not going to have a, a, a an immigration policy that that meets those uh, standards then it should be pragmatic uh, as well. Um, The idea that we should not focus on the fact that we have this chaos at the border, the vast majority, despite what Kennedy says and what uh, other uh, politicians are saying about 200 different countries. Yeah, there's like a few people who show up from from various countries around the world. That's fine. Uh, That's true. But the vast majority of the people who are coming to the border are from this hemisphere. And until 1965, we didn't have caps on immigration for the Western Hemisphere. And so the idea that we shouldn't focus on uh, this specific problem that is, that is creating so much hardship for the, both the people who are coming, but the, the communities along the border, the illegality, the amount of money that we're spending to keep people who are uh, Americans in the sense of they're from the Americas out of the United States of America is astounding. So we should have a, an immigration policy 
that is pragmatic if it's not going to be principled. And uh, the pragmatic policy is focusing on uh, work visa options for people from the Western Hemisphere who are coming, currently coming to the border to request asylum or safety or whatever the case might be. But the vast majority of these people, they want to get out of very dire circumstances in their home countries, but that doesn't mean they want to live here forever either. And so we've seen Guatemalans and Hondurans and Salvadorans showing up in huge numbers since 2014. And uh, many of them, if not most of them, are ultimately going to return to their home countries. And we're seeing a total transformation in uh, neighborhoods throughout Central America where uh, money is being sent back to build homes for their families in safer communities. Then the, the, the worker who's here goes home and rejoins his family in a safer community, in a better home with a business that he owns or whatever. And so uh, people need to look at the bigger picture, the dynamic nature of immigration, and not focus on, oh, this person came in and, and that, that means they're going to be here forever and, uh, you know, totally change our country or, or whatever their fear, fear is. Uh, it's much more dynamic than that. And the dynamic part of it is actually going to produce a better consequence for both the home country and the United States, because when they help build up their, their communities in, in their home countries, that means that fewer people are going to want to come to the United States in the future. So in the long term, in the big picture, um, legal immigration uh, that focuses on uh, solving the problem at the border, the illegal immigration problem, which is primarily driven by Western Hemisphere countries, uh, it should be a priority for the government. So there was a story from The Hill in early 2022 about disagreements between the Biden administration and immigration advocates. And you're both quoted in that piece. And uh, David, you made the point that while the Biden administration views migrants who are already in the U.S. as beneficial, they view future immigration as uh, not as an opportunity to be harnessed to the benefit of a country, uh, it's seen as a detriment. It's seen as a problem to be managed rather than an opportunity to grow and improve the country. So it, looking toward how uh, we could frame this issue more as an opportunity, how could our conversations about immigration change uh, if we flip that political narrative? And what would you like to see you know, in, in the political discourse? What, how, how do you think we could create an environment, a rhetorical environment in which um, we are scrambling to solve the problem because that's where the incentive is as opposed to uh, scrambling to demagogue it. Yeah. So uh, what I want to see from the Biden administration and from the president is him talking about the need for workers, the fact that there aren't child care options available in your city, the fact that there aren't elder care options available for uh, retirees and, and, and people who uh, need help uh, when they get sick. Uh, you know, our family's going through both of those situations at the same time, and I'm not alone. There, there are families across the country who need help, and finding options is a direct consequence of the fact that we don't have the workers that we need in these sectors. And whether it's it's rural physicians or or uh, nursing crisis or uh, childcare crisis, we have a need for people who are going to benefit this country, benefit you. And 
they're there. They're they're at our borders now, but we have a better way and start talking about the legal process. We're going to let them in. We're going to let them in legally. We're going to make them come legally should probably be the best political way of putting it. And uh, the result is going to be better for you and better for your family. And I, I think once people start seeing how that plays out, okay, yeah, look, uh, there are more childcare options. There are more uh, options for um, elder care. There are more uh, physicians in my area as a consequence of this. Um, and there aren't chaos at the border. It, it's going to produce the political change that we need in the long term. Frank, um, I'd love for you to lay out what real policy reform in the immigration system could look like, what you, what you think some key changes are that need to be considered, what are the main obstacles or factors that are currently getting in the way of achieving meaningful immigration policy, whether it's, um, whether it's actual substantive disagreement between, the, between the both, both of the sides uh, in Congress or, or whether it's just the noise of politics that's preventing them from coming to the table in the first place. What, how would you characterize where we are now and the distance between here and real meaningful immigration reform, whether that distance constitutes substance or politics? So the good news is, I think we know what the future of a workable immigration policy system looks like. The problem is that we don't have a politics that can legislate that solution. So that can change, and I hope it will. But the, the policy reform is quite simple. Look, we passed comprehensive immigration reform twice, once in 2006 in the U.S. Senate, once in 2013 in the U.S. Senate, both times a divided and, and anti-immigrant dominant, dominated GOP in the House said no. But the fact is, is that you expand legal immigration, high skilled, you reform the family system somewhat. In the economic system, you expand high-skilled immigration, but you provide temporary and permanent visas at the lower end of the labor market, which is so critical to filling jobs that we're not producing enough Americans to fill, quite frankly, and then um, making sure there's a humanitarian track that is done in coordination with countries around the world that understands that you can't accept all the refugees in Western countries, but also make sure that we are doing our fair share to make sure that those who throw themselves on the mercy of the international community get some protection. So, so the idea of uh, expanding legal immigration, uh, legalizing the undocumented immigrants through a process by which they have background checks, et cetera, and then making sure that we have enforcement that is targeted and effective. Right now, we like an measure actually secure border. Yeah, so so we yeah. measure how many, you know, how many how many miles of wall. I can promise you, as a, as an expert on immigration, that we could build a two thousand mile wall. But when you can go to Home Depot and buy a saw or a rope ladder, it's not going to work. Let's not kid ourselves. That is a rally chant that has become a thing, rather than a serious policy. Okay, how do we enforce? the line at the border? How do we incentivize people not to come to the line to try to uh, uh, take advantage of an asylum process that's overwhelmed? And again, it's being done now with legal channels and refugee processing centers being built in other countries. There's ways to do this. And I think we're just fumbling our way into a, a new way of, of ordering um, mass migration and refugee flows in a, in, in a 21st century. The, so 
what the problem is is that the Republicans who used to support reform um, have either gone away or uh, have gone underground. Um, you know, Tom Tillis of North Carolina tried to cut a deal with Cursed Cinema on Dreamers. And he got censured for it. Yeah, he got censured for it. I mean, you know. Um, so so there's not a lot of room for I, – I think encouragingly, uh, a progressive Democrat from El Paso, Veronica Escobar, and a conservative Cuban-American uh, woman from South Florida, um, Maria Elvira Salazar, they've come together on a bipartisan comprehensive package. It's not perfect, but it's a start. It's a way to say, come on. We can do this. We can walk and chew gum. We can expand immigration and expand orderliness. We can be a nation of immigrants and a nation of laws. This is our in our DNA. We've just lost our way in this binary, too many, not enough, wrong people, future Americans. Come on. Immigration has been foundational to the American experiment. And if we're going to squander this incredible advantage that we have, um, because of our of short-term political considerations, well, that will be to our detriment as a nation. I uh, I'm mindful of the time here, um, guys, but I want to I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to flag anything that we haven't paid due attention to um, in this in this conversation that it's probably on people's minds. I, you know, the the drug issue comes to mind. Um, if there's something worth laying out there, myth versus reality, but um, but really anything any any uh, any ground we haven't covered that that really demands to be um, yeah out I, here, David. Just one big picture item here is the fact that most Americans believe that the immigrant share of the U.S. population is about double what it actually is. When you ask them, they they think that about one in three people in the United States is born in another country. The reality is it's less than half of that. And so this disparity between what people believe the situation is in the United States, that we are, you know, uh, really at historic levels of, of immigration compared to what other countries. In reality, Australia does have about one in three of its population is foreign born. In order to get from where Americans believe the immigrant population is and and uh, and where we actually are, we need about 75 million immigrants to show up here tomorrow. And so there's a massive, massive gap in belief. And um, that is ultimately a huge burden uh, to overcome when you're trying to talk about immigration reform and how to fix the system. People think that on average, it takes a couple years to come to the United States legally. That's in the best case scenario imaginable. It takes a couple of years. Um, we did a poll at the Cato Institute. We asked people, what's a reasonable amount of time that absolute max you should be allowed to wait to immigrate? And the response was over 66% said it should take less than five years. In reality, for the people who are already in the system right now, their, their projected wait times are anywhere from 20 years to over 100 years, basically infinite, right? 
And so the, they, Americans do not support the system that exists. They just don't know what exists. And once they have these sort of realities drawn out um, and see, you know, that there is a better way, I, I'm more hopeful. Uh, but right now, you need a, a political entrepreneur. You need a politician willing to tell them the truth. And right now, we have, whether it's Biden, Biden doesn't want to talk about this. The reforms that he has done, the, the changes that he has made that I consider positive, were forced on him by realities on the ground. He couldn't do enough to deport the people who were showing up the border, so he decided we're going to do try some of this legal immigration stuff that the Cato Institute keeps talking about. So that's what ended up forcing change. But if he wants to be a real leader and say, actually, no, we need people, uh, people are a benefit to our country, there's sectors in this country that are desperate for workers, uh, he could really change the narrative because people think what people think about the immigration system and what it actually is are very divergent. And he could highlight that because he does have the facts. He, ha he is in control of that very system. Frank? I just don't want us to lose hope. Uh, we are in a time where immigration is a leading edge of authoritarian populism, not only in America, but throughout the West. I think that as America survives this threat to democracy that's coming from the MAGA forces and emerges on the other side with a determination never to put ourselves into a position again where a demagogue and a cult can threaten our democracy, that we'll make the kinds of changes that will allow our governmental system to function um, more in line with what the public wants. So I do think that we're going to have to work through this political challenge to our democracy first, but that one of the things that right on the other side is going to be a, the ability for sensible people on the right and left to come together and shape a modernization of our immigration system so that it's um, more beneficial to America, more orderly, um, and, um, and, and makes us feel good about who we are because it, it, it strengthens who we are. Um, so I just want to leave a, a bit of optimism. I appreciate that. I know, I know listeners will as well. And I have uh, found this conversation very illuminating. Um, and so I, I, my, my thanks to both of you for, for being here and sharing your wisdom and your experience. Um, before I let you go, uh, I imagine there will be quite a few people who would like to reach out, follow you, follow your work, um, where can you be found on the internet if you want to be found on the internet and, uh, and, and, and where would you direct people if they want to, um, if they want to get in touch or, or, uh, follow what you're doing, Frank? Well, I've, uh, stepped down and stepped back from a, a more public role, but I, I, I do have a Twitter handle. It's at Frank Sherry. And David? And my Twitter is, uh, David underscore J underscore beer. And uh, all my work can be found at uh, Cato.org. All right. Terrific. Uh, guys, thanks for being here. And um, we might have to uh, do this again if uh, Congress gets its act together and decides to approach immigration reform. I hope you'll come back. Uh, but thanks for now. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate it. David, good to see you. Good to see you, Frank. 
Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.